0: Today's show is sponsored by The Wandering Owl, thewanderingowl.com.
1: Imagine yourself under a starry sky, around the warm glow of the sacred fire, as your hosts Sarenth Odinson and James Stovall talk about shamanism, animism, books, science, psychology, pop culture, and more. Won't you come and join us around Grandfather Fire? Tell a child she is composed of parts, her Ojibwe quarters, her German half-heart. She'll find the existence of harpies easy to swallow. Storybook children never come close to her mix, but manticores make great uncles. Sphinx a cousin she will allow, centaurs better to love than boys, the horse part at least she can ride. With a bestiary for a family album, she's proud. Her heap of blankets, her garbage grin, prove she descended of bears, her totem, it's true. And that German witch with the candy roof, that is her ancestor too. If swans can rain white rape from heaven, then what is a girl to do? Believe her Indian eyes, her sly French smile, her breast with its veins skim milk blue she is the myth that is true welcome everybody to another episode of around grandfather fire my name is james stovall and i am joined as always by my good friend and co-host sarinth odinson how are you doing tonight sarinth
0: i'm doing fantastic that was glorious
1: Thank yeah you. um that is a poem by Hyde E. heidi who is a member of the Turtle Mountain Band of Ojibwe. And that was a poem I found on poetryfoundation.org entitled True Myth, which I thought, wow. man, when I read it, I was like tripping around online today. And I'm like, okay, there's what I'm going to be opening the show with. That sounds like <laughs> a really good one.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I just, something about the words of it, the way it all came together. I'm just like, because you know, speaking of mythology and Native American and and the German mm. and the and the Native American altogether, I was just like, "Yep, I like it."
0: <laughs> Beautiful, yeah. Um, not much is going on in my corner. Uh, been working a lot of OT, right? All over again. This this is a refrain that I think the audience is getting used to. Like, does this guy ever see his so, home?
1: <laughs> Real quick, tell me about that book that you've been reading. Oh, by the way, before I, before I go too far, everybody, this yeah. is, uh, you're listening to episode number 15, and uh, Sarah and I are going to chat here for a m- few minutes, and then we're bringing you an interview with a fantastic man, uh, Sensei Alex, and we're going to talk about Buddhism, Zen, the Four Noble Truths, and a really awesome conversation about karma. So I know you're going to want to listen yeah. to that one, but yeah, it was a great conversation too. But yeah. anyway, this book that you're reading, Sarah, I, I saw mm-hmm. you talking about it online. Tell me a little bit more about that. Oh, uh, the world we used to live in by vine
0: Deloria jr. There's so much, uh, honestly, it would require its, its own podcast. Uh, <laughs> Sounds like a future <sighs> show. It, it It is. I mean, th- this book is really good. Um, the basic overarching thing for it is, uh, Vine Jr. went through a lot of accounts, um, especially of colonial and um, post-colonial uh, America um, explorations of, of medicine people and non-medicine mm-hmm. people too, mm-hmm. and really kind of brings together all these different medicine stories and how the spirits really were a vital, integrated part of these people's lives. Mm-hmm. And it's, I cannot praise this book highly enough. It gives me a lot to chew on as a heathen, it as a polytheist, as an animist. And it's, it's, mm, it's, it was a really good read. I, I sat down with it and I basically ate it in two nights. It's,
1: <laughs> you know what we should do? It'd be fascinating. Mm. We should set this up like a book club since he, uh, we should, uh, uh, put the name out there we've got all our listeners and we should just set a date and say if you've got questions or comments about this book submit it by x date and then we'll talk we'll do a show about it afterwards that would be kind of fun yes
0: I love this idea that's fantastic
1: let's Let's do it we'll have to look at the calendar next episode everybody we'll try to remember to uh, uh, get you a date for our book club and and post up some links where you can buy the book on Amazon or or, uh, Google Books or something like that
0: Yep. So, if you're listening to this episode, the the book to look for is by Vine Deloria Jr. and it's "The World We Used to Live In." And yeah, it, this is definitely its its own episode because it's it's deep. It's good.
1: Yeah, it's you know it'll be great. We we haven't had as many shows where it's just you and I chatting either, so we can we can mm-hmm. get back into an episode about that. But you know, I, I got to tell you, I'm really happy with a lot of the guests that we have uh lined up man i was looking at our calendar holy smokes <laughs> do we have a lot of guests lined up yeah i think we're i think we're up through march yeah exactly yeah i'm I'm looking at booking uh, uh i've got my first requests in for uh march and april now so i just added uh our good friends uh, uh joyweed medic and lilith three feathers and uh excellent um, we're going to be talking about their shamanic conference that comes up in June. And uh, man, we just like uh, guest after guest after guest. It's, it's awesome.
0: Yeah, we, I mean, our, our guest list is really taking off in a, a wonderful way. And I'm very excited to, to see it the way it's it unfolding. Um, yeah, there's a couple of guests that, that I brought on board that I'm very excited for. The number one that I'm thinking of is Gunny from thelongship.net.
1: Oh, right. That one's going to be awesome yes oh, i can't wait yeah no happy she agreed. so no it, it's it's a
0: lot we've just kind of started unrolling and yeah they exactly. showed up
1: we appreciate so. everybody with it that's giving us feedback or sending us links or uh uh giving us guest suggestions too because that's been really helpful
0: absolutely yeah it's it's been a real joy and a real privilege to speak with these folks um you know since i alex I loved this interview because he he really digs into the meat of where a lot of our misconceptions about Buddhism run in straight headlong into the. Oh, modern yeah. Yeah. Phenomenal. I think
1: I think definitely. Oh, look, I got an ambulance going by out here in the countryside. How about that? Um, OK, so. <laughs> the, uh, um uh, what I love about this interview I, I the the value of the conversation that we had just about things like karma is so amazing because yes. talk about one of the most misunderstood terms oh
0: one of the most twisted, misunderstood, and abused terms,
1: yeah, and there were some aspects of it that came out in this interview that I honestly hadn't really considered before, so that was pretty that was pretty awesome.
0: Yeah. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to this, this interview and I I hope you folks are really, and, and just sit back and really dig into the meat of it. Um, cause he, he, he brings the heat. I love it.
1: <laughs> and also, um, since I mentioned we're sitting here, it's a, it's a Tuesday night and Sareth and I are going to be gearing up pretty soon to head to convocation in the Metro Detroit, Detroit area, Detroit area. And, uh, uh, feel free to seek us out there. We'll be wandering around. I'm doing a fire ceremony and a talking stick ceremony. What classes are you doing, Serith?
0: Uh I'm doing polytheism and tribal societies at like nine thirty in the morning on Saturday. And then two I'm doing a, uh, a class on the basics of heathenry. Um, and you know, the title of the thing just escaped me. It's, uh, <laughs> something the effect of Yggdrasil. It's three, ah, Yggdrasil is trees and branches. Gotcha. There we go. It's,
1: and uh, then, and then uh, we're going to be recording with the podcast, as we mentioned, before, Three Pagans and a Cat, and that's going to be a lot of fun. I'm not sure when that one's nice. actually going to air, but uh, gosh, man, I'm looking forward to that. That's going to be great as well.
0: Yes, I'm I'm really looking forward to those three. Yeah. That's going to be, be, so be a fun.
1: great weekend. So if you're at Convocation this weekend, feel free to seek us out. And uh, and uh, if you don't like our show, lie to us. <laughs> Please. I think if you're listening still by episode fifteen, you're probably okay with it at least. Well, just just perhaps. You know. <laughs> I mean, just,
0: just some people maybe they just like punishing themselves by listening to us jibber jabber <laughs> for an hour and a half. <laughs> uh,
1: I think my kids think it's punishment listening to me sometimes, so it's possible. Well, that's just that's that's normal dad stuff, though, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> Well, unless you can think of anything else, Sarinth... Oh, uh, seek us out online, too. You can find Saranth and his writings at saranth.wordpress.com. You can find him on Twitter at Sarinth. You can find me on Twitter at James at the Owl or on Instagram at WanderingWhiteHat. So make sure you seek us out online. Uh, give us a shout-out. Take a look at our pictures. Uh, read our articles. Do whatever. Yep. No,
0: I got nothing else, so let's All get right, right on the Fantastic.
1: Dessert. Let's go talk to Sensei Alex. Sensei Alex, welcome to Around Grandfather Fire.
2: Thank you for having me. Glad to be here.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. I've really been looking forward to this because, uh, you know, we deal on this show, we talk to a lot of shamanic practitioners, and I was I was eager to talk to somebody that comes at their spiritual practice from a little bit different perspective. Um, give our audience a little bit of information about yourself. Tell us a little bit about you.
2: Sure. Well, I'm a Buddhist minister in the Bright Dawn Center of Oneness Buddhism. And I'm a lay minister. So what that means is I have a job. I pay bills just like everyone else. Um, I don't have a temple that I'm responsible for caring for. However, I am Mm -hmm. authorized to teach Buddhism. Uh, And I do that in a number of ways, Uh, either act as a chaplain at activist events. working with people via my blog or online and things of that nature. So I kind of have a foot in both the spiritual realm and the uh, conventional realm, if you will.
1: Right. And I noticed you've got uh, a number of really nice articles on your uh, blog spot, which is same dot And I even saw that you have some YouTube videos I was taking a glance at.
2: Yes. Yes. That's uh, the primary the primary way that I teach is either through my blog or through my YouTube channel. Um, I'm a millennial, so I like technology. (laughs) I want to make it, (laughs) I want to make it as available as I can for people. So, uh, with it being online, they can access it whenever they like, which is great. And then also if they have questions, of course they can email me.
1: Definitely. Well, the, uh, um, Now, how did you get started on this sort of path? Because I'm reading that, I mean, you started, you were a Marine and I'm sure life has taken some twists and turns for you. How did you get to this point?
2: Sure. Absolutely. So the short answer that I generally give is that I tried everything else and it didn't work. (laughs) All right. That's fair. (laughs) So I I thought I tried Buddhism. Um, It's kind of funny. I'm a millennial. So, you know, born early 80s. And with our generation, I really feel we are the test case in a lot of ways for this idea of materialism and access to, to technology. And if these things can give us lasting happiness, because, you know, I remember life before the Internet. And so I, I know how different it is uh, where before, if I wanted to learn something, I had to, you know, grab which was probably 10 years out of date and hope it was in there and if not I'd go to the library and now anything I want to know I can pull out my cell phone and find out anything I want to learn I can find a YouTube video um, material access is better than it ever been has ever been so I feel like for our generation we were told that you there's no reason you should not be happy right because you have everything and what I found in my late 20s was, you know, I had the car, I had the job, I had the apartment. I, I hit all the check marks that society had said would lead to happiness, and none of them did. Um, so I have desperation, essentially. I, I started trying other things, and I found my path
1: with Buddhism. What are those first tentative sort of steps like? Did you start as as a millennial, self uh, self described millennial? Did you start yourself with YouTube videos or downloads, or where did you kind of get started?
2: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I started off um, with YouTube videos, uh, documentaries on Netflix, things like that. Um, spent a year studying on my own, uh, you know, finding books in the library, things of that nature, and. Once I realized that this was something I definitely wanted to do, that's when I took the next step and found a teacher in a temple that I could practice at as well.
0: Can you talk a little bit about what that process of finding a teacher was like for you? Sure.
2: Absolutely. Well, the Internet was involved with that as well. (laughs) (laughs) So... I'd been st- studying and practicing on my own, reading books, uh, meditating in my apartment, things like that. And it, it was working. Um, I felt a lot better about life. I was making better decisions. But on the flip side, I had a lot of questions that I couldn't answer and that I couldn't find with you know a YouTube video or a Netflix documentary. So uh, I was living in Indiana at the time, and I just typed in um, this temple <laughs> to see what would pop up and it just so happened i lived near uh, a temple that was associated with the kuan Yung school of zen
1: hmm. which
2: is a Korean zen tradition so i started off practicing there and th- that was really terrific because uh, the kuan Yun school of zen uh, they do a really good job of blending the traditional uh, monastic practice if you will with everyday life So the idea isn't so much that you'll go and live in a monastery. It's that you'll wake up, you'll meditate, you'll go to work, you'll come home, you'll meditate, you'll do the laundry, that sort of thing. So uh, that was really terrific. (laughs) I can relate to that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It it was nice because that was my my first tidbit with this idea that we could blend – our spiritual practice with our everyday life and they didn't have to be separate things. So that, that kind of helped to set me on the path. Oh, so yeah, yeah.
1: that makes a lot of sense too. That's really important. At least I found in my practice, because uh, if you try to separate these things too much, you you kind of drive yourself crazy and you don't get as much fulfillment out of it as you could. I mean, there's, there's a certain sort of spirituality and mindfulness and uh, 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 completeness that comes from, just being actively involved in even very mundane things if, if you approach it with the right spirituality.
2: Sure. No, absolutely. hundred percent. And I had that exact experience where I essentially did drive myself crazy because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was living this, this dual where you know, I'm trying to practice, but I feel like, so I'm at work, but I feel like I should be practicing. But I still have to go to work because, you know, I have bills and student loans and things of that nature. So um, at one point, I just said, you know, forget this. Like, I thought that I would turn my back on the conventional world. So what I did was I quit my job and, you know, gave away all of my possessions. And my, my grand plan was that I would become an organic farmer. And I would live close to nature, and I would live like these Zen monks that I saw in the movies and whatnot. And I would just live what I felt was a more pure life. Hmm. And I did that for about eight months, you know, traveling to organic farms and doing work uh, at various places. And It was a terrific experience, but what I realized very quickly is that you, you can't escape the world. Um, your problems will travel with you. Human nature is the same. Um, in a corporate boardroom, on a farm, you know, the politics are still there, favoritism, things of that nature. So, at that point, that's when I finally got the message that if I was going to practice, then I had to practice in every moment. You know, the washing dishes had to be my spiritual practice. Going to work and sitting in front of a computer had to be my spiritual practice. And when I came back from the farm, that's when I found the Bright Dawn Center One is Buddhism, which is great because that's their that's our whole deal is how do you make your daily life your spiritual practice to the point that uh Reverend Koyo actually teaches something he calls uh toilet gacho, which <laughs> is you're <laughs> you're in the bathroom in the morning doing your business and there's you know, a, a ceremony he teaches of how this can be, you know, your morning practice with, you know, chants and things of that nature. So we integrate everything.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Um, we have a something that I was turned on to similarly in the Northern tradition. Um, in, in our cosmology, there's a great dragon that chews on the world and eats the poison of the tree. Uh, mm-hmm. And so we, when you're using the bathroom, you can actually make prayers to her and thank her for taking up that poison. So like it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it really kind of jives with what you're talking about with the gusho you've been taught. That's really fascinating to me. That's no, that, utterly cool.
2: That, that is very fascinating. It's funny to me because the more I practice and the deeper I get into my practice, um, I feel like different religious traditions and spiritual paths are all trying to answer the same questions Mm -hmm. so not necessarily saying or doing the same things but trying to answer the same questions and then a lot of the rituals that you see in um, paganism or buddhism or christianity you can see the similarities between them which is interesting like what you just mentioned the toilet guy shows so it's it's very funny to me. Um, I feel like human nature hasn't changed all that much since the time of the Buddha, but then also mm. the ways to fix human nature, if you will, haven't changed that much either.
1: <laughs> well, and it occurs to me as you're talking, too, that, um, you know, like we've all had those same sort of images that you see in media, the where the, you know, the monk on the farm and that sort of thing. And I think people forget because it's easy. To forget in our modern context, but why were they farming those fields? Because that was their job, right? That's how you fed yourself and your family and your village. So that's your job. And mm-hmm. so they developed those spiritual practices on their jobs, so to speak. And so there is no reason why it doesn't for them i'm sure there was days that was just the most boring and tedious thing and they and they discovered their spirituality in and, and there's no reason why that same thing can't be applied to accounting you know what i mean it's it's the same <laughs> ideas just the job is different absolutely
2: 100% and that's really where i come from uh, with my blog when i'm writing i really try to take you know just my own life and my daily task and what i'm working with or struggling with and well how can buddhism help me solve this problem or what buddhist lesson can i extract you know from whatever i'm doing in the moment and it's really exactly like you said they were working because that was their job uh, we romanticize it um, mm-hmm. because you know we have apartments and cars and you know, etc but I learned very quickly when I was farming that it's not this, you know, idyllic, you know, happy-go-lucky practice. It's a <laughs> very right. hard manual labor. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you, you only have to go to bed a couple of times sore and hurting before you get that message that uh, <laughs> this is a job. And I'm sure there were days, like you said, where they were like, man. <laughs>
1: <Right>? <laughs> you know, we, we sit here and complain about our cars not starting and stuff. You know, Even since ancient times, there was days they were going, this damn ox will not budge today. I've had enough. I can't do this anymore.
2: Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that uh, Buddhism has helped me with because a big part of the practice is understanding interdependence and being grateful for the things that you receive. So just constantly reminding myself um, there's a prayer we say. Uh, May the merit of this action benefit all beings. I give thanks to the universe who made it possible. Mm. And just constantly saying that and reminding myself that, you know, just putting food in the microwave and having something isn't a normal thing. Like there's a lot of work that went into this that I did not do. And like, I'm really living it up right (laughs) (laughs) now. I don't have to deal with an ox to go to work. Right. Everything's fine.
0: <laughs> That's a really good point. I think that uh, in the in the midst of our, our troubles, sometimes the best thing for me has to been has has to been a, really take stock of of what I actually have. I've got a computer, and that alone, you know, if you take a step and really think about what went into making it, is a trip on its own. But yeah, my microwave a microwave meal, a sandwich that I can just put together in five seconds flat. I mean, those are truly awe-inspiring.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I cannot remember, but somewhere I read about a guy who was getting a sandwich, and he wanted to see how much work actually went into making a sandwich Mm -hmm. and how long it would take. And so he did everything. Like He got the seeds, he grew the wheat, he ground it into flour and made bread and he grew the lightest and all this. And total, it took six months and $2,000 for him to make a sandwich literally from scratch. So the fact that we can just, you know, slap some stuff together and have one in five minutes, it, it's really a fantastic thing. And for me, it's been a very humbling experience to constantly think about that and think about, you know, the farmer who make my food and the truck driver who brought it to the store I think before I started practicing I had a very much a uh, the world is out to get me sort of mentality mm-hmm. uh,
1: you know, in the
2: west we're very we idolize the individual and it's all about me and what I did and what I accomplished so the probably the most important part of the practice for me has been pulling me out of myself and the reminders that You know, I didn't build this computer that I'm using right now. It's countless hours of work and technology and expertise. And, you know, there's really no proper way to express that other than gratitude. And on the flip side, to really work, to use it in a beneficial way, uh, Zen Master Dogen, who was a, a Zen monk in Japan, said that we should live our lives as if we have a debt can never repay. And I, I think that's a really good way to put it. Yeah,
1: that's a great way of putting it. Absolutely. So it seems to me that you're the perfect one to ask. The because you you uh mentioned it earlier, having been someone who got started and even teaches using a lot of online tools and technology, but also you were at traditional temples, you gave up for very simplistic lifestyle how would you contrast those two different ways of learning? And like, if someone's looking to deepen their path or to even just get started, what sort of uh, pitfalls or things should they be aware of in this contrast between the old school and the new school? Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Well, I think
2: the one problem and we kind of talked about this earlier and it's certainly something i did that is that people tend to romanticize the practice if you look at the story of the historical buddha he spent six years training before he sat under the bodhi tree and realized enlightenment and even then he sat there with the understanding and with that and i'm paraphrasing even if the flesh falls from my bones i won't move from this spot until i realize enlightenment so it's it's not an easy path and it's not a pretty one uh, most of the time i have been at retreats where people have broken down crying as they sat in meditation um i've had some very difficult experiences while i was meditating or you know going about my work practice things of that nature lots of things Happen and come up. And I think as Westerners, you know, we see the end, right? We see that, oh, the Buddha sat under the tree and he was enlightened. Or we see this monastic who's very calm and tranquil and peaceful. And we don't realize that the reason that person is tranquil is because they've been practicing for 20 years. So I think the biggest thing we have. We need to have is just a very realistic understanding of exactly what we're trying to accomplish and the time and effort that's involved in it. Um, so that's probably one. And then two, I would say don't quit your day job.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I <That's>, love it. <laughs> that's probably your best advice.
2: Okay. I love yes. it. So, um, because there's a lot of spiritual bypassing that happens. And I I was guilty of that early on, of thinking that this was going to fix me. And if I practice, then I'll never experience anger again. And everyone will be nice to me. And I'll never be in traffic jams. And, you know, I won't need a job anymore. (laughs) And that's just not... (laughs) The reality of the situation. Your your day, daily life will still be your daily life. Um, you'll just deal with it in a more what I call a more intelligent way. So you'll experience anger, you'll just you'll deal with that anger better than you would have in the past, that
1: sort of thing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So um how would you say that it is influenced how you go about your daily life? Like, uh, how, how, um, what, what practical ways does it reflect itself or how does it affect your ability on the job? That sort of thing. I'm kind of looking for a way to almost uh, give advice to people on how they can, they can live into those, those lives and jobs a little bit better and get more satisfaction out of them.
2: Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Well, I think the, the first key is really the fourth or fourth, the first noble truth of Buddhism. Um, I'll tell you all four and then I'll go back to the first one. So it states uh, life is suffering. Suffering is caused by desire. The way to end suffering is to end desire. And the way to end desire is the Eightfold Path. So I'd say the biggest key for me uh, as far as integrating my spirituality with my Buddha, with my daily life is just reminding myself that life is suffering um and that sounds a little brutalistic on the surface but that doesn't mean <laughs> that life is continuous pain or torture or anything like that uh, when buddhists say life is suffering it's almost like we're saying it's snowing outside you know it's just a statement of fact Um, there will be disappointments, things will go wrong, but, you know, even with the snow, if you're prepared for the snow and well-dressed, it can be a lot of fun, right? You can build snowmans and things that go sliding, but if you're not prepared and you go out there in flip-flops and shorts, then you're probably not going to have a good time. So with daily life, it's important for us to remember that things are supposed to go wrong. Like that's that's a part of life. That's a part of the process. We're supposed caught in traffic jams. People are supposed to not do their part of the project at work. Our kid is supposed to not take out the trash when we tell him to. That's just <laughs> that's just what happens. <laughs> and if we go at it with that mindset, then those things don't bug us nearly as much because it's expected. Um, not to say we want it to happen, but we understand that at some point it probably will, and that's okay. I think as Westerners, we come at life from the opposite perspective, uh, uh, because we're consumers, and you know everything should be our way, and I'm paying good money, so everything should work. And that's not how life is, at least not from the Buddhist perspective. So I'd say the the first is to just have a clear understanding that you know life is suffering. Soft- and that's okay I'm going to prepare for that and then the second perspective would be now that we have established that you know things will go wrong well well how do we make it right at that point point? and there there's a very simple question that I always ask myself is can I fix this problem mm. and if the answer is yes then I'll do whatever I need to do and I'll fix it And if the answer is no, then I'll just practice acceptance. And I'll meet always in either one of those two modes of, okay, this is something that I can control. It's in my purview and I'll fix it. Or there's just literally nothing I can do in this situation. Um, Traffic is backed up for a mile. There's no turnoffs. I'm just going to turn on the radio and enjoy myself. (laughs) Um, Because when we talk about, you know, suffering is caused by this. That desire that he's referencing is the desire for life to be something other than it is. Mm, Okay. So it's either we just I like talking about traffic jams because everyone's experienced that. If we're stuck in the car and there's an exit a half mile up, well then there's nothing to be upset about. I can just you know peel off and that's fine. But if I'm stuck in the car and I I'm just stuck in the car and there's no exits then any suffering I experience is caused by me wanting to not be stuck there. Which you could say yeah. is a normal, it's normal to not want to be stuck there, but that's why he said it goes back to life is suffering, because we want things, they're not the way we want, so we suffer, and then we suffer because we want things, and it kind of feeds into each other. So if we learn to break that loop and just accept things as they are, then life becomes a lot easier. Um, I I actually had this exact experience Um, when I was working. This was early in my practice and I was stuck in a traffic jam and I just started this new job. I'd been there for about six months. They were finally trusting me with more responsibility. We had an 8 a.m. meeting with some clients and there was some construction going on. So but I was on top of it. I left 45 minutes early just to ensure that I wasn't going to be late. You know, I prepped the night before did everything I was supposed to. I pull in and somehow the construction got bigger overnight. So both lanes were blocked. And it just so happened that there was only one way to get into my parking lot. So there was no escape. And at first, like, oh, it's fine. 30 minutes. I'll, I'll get there when I get there. And then it's 20 and then 15, and then 10, and finally, I realized, okay, I'm not going to be on time for this meeting, and this is early in my practice, so I'll be honest, I did not handle it like the calm, collected <laughs> I was supposed to be. <laughs> uh, I, I did all the stereotypical things, you know, honk the horn, yelled out the window, etc., and then, even though it was early in my practice, it was... I had been practicing long enough that I knew that one, what I was doing wasn't helping and that two, well, maybe I should try some mindfulness and see what happens. So I started focusing on my breath and that calmed me down. And then I called my boss to let her know that I wasn't going to make it. Turns out the clients were also stuck in the same traffic jam I was. So (laughs) nobody was, she was calling everyone to let them know and I just happened to be last on her list so she hadn't called me yet that the meeting was going to be rescheduled so I was freaking nice. out it was nothing but uh you know looking back um as a teacher and this that experience the problem wasn't the traffic jam the problem was that I wanted there to not be a traffic jam right so I created a lot of unnecessary suffering for myself that didn't fix the problem so um I always think back to that and I use it as kind of a teaching moment so people can learn from my mistakes and that, you know, life is going to give us bad situations. But if we can just accept that, you know, sometimes this is a bad situation and there's nothing I can do and I just have to endure for a while, then we cannot make a bad situation worse.
1: I think uh, a lot of times in the Uh, New Age communities, for example, there's a lot of this concept where if something goes wrong, it's your mentality that that um, and, and that ties in a little bit to what you're saying about alleviating suffering by not having it sort of thing. But there I think we trip across sometimes this boundary where we get almost sometimes into an area of victim blaming like, Oh, you just should have chose not to be mad. How do you balance those two sides of that equation in your life?
2: That is an excellent question. And it's one that frankly, a lot of teachers struggle with Mm -hmm. because, um, because both are true, right? Right. I mean, on the one hand, you know, we do have a lot of control over our suffering and, you know, what hurts us and what doesn't. And, well, if you were just a more awakened being, this wouldn't bother you. But, you know, that can, like you said, get into victim blaming and just, you know, frankly, it's just not not very helpful. And from the Buddhist perspective, we have to approach life. You know, there's the absolute, but then there's also the relative and Uh, Zen master Sun Song used to say that we 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 live in the absolute or I'm forgetting the quote but basically he used to say that we live in emptiness but we work in form Mm. so in otherwise as as Buddhists our job is to understand the big picture emptiness the absolute but we don't use that to escape the relative world the daily life issues we use that to inform our practice so we kind of cycle between the two um, so you meditate but then you go washing dishes you don't mm-hmm. meditate and then say i don't need to wash dishes and in issues of people who are suffering i think that's a really important thing is that yes um the grand scheme of things, you know, 100 years from now, none of this will matter and, you know, our suffering, you know, won't exist. But here in this moment, there is a problem and we need to deal with it. Um, The metaphor I like to use is a child who's seen a scary movie. And you, as the adult, you know, there's no monsters under the bed. You know, it's just a movie. You know, that's the absolute. But The relative says there's still a child here who's crying and they need to be comforted. So we don't say it's just a movie, go back to bed, right? Um we what my parents used to do is they'd make a big production of, okay, I'll look under the bed, uh, no monsters Mm -hmm. there. (laughs) Okay, no monsters Mm -hmm. there. So, you know, again, allowing the spiritual to inform our conventional life or allowing the absolute to inform the relative. We understand big picture as a teacher. I understand okay in the grand scheme of things, everything's okay. But in this moment that you're hurting, here are some things you can do that will help. So, and, and we have to we have to walk both of those paths at the same
1: time as practitioners. Yeah, I think that's really refreshing to hear. A teachers say that because uh, you know I I feel like sometimes teachers leaders uh, the, the the people that are at the forefront get put on these pedestals I know I've many times told my own students that you know if I don't know the answer I'll I'll just tell you I don't know the answer and then we can go look for it together mm-hmm. and that's I think that's an important thing that sometimes Even spirituality becomes almost like a commodity and you want to have the best brand name, the best version out there. And and I think it's important that that modesty is there with teachers to say, you know, sometimes we don't always know or sometimes we struggle with it ourselves. So I'm really glad to hear you say that.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I've, I've been really fortunate this regard, because I, I've seen uh, teachers who kind of drink their own Kool-Aid, if you will, and <laughs> you know, put themselves on the pedestal. And I was really, really, really fortunate in my training to not run into that. And it was nothing I did; it was just dumb luck that I just happened to have teachers that were very, you know, down to earth and very, you know, like you said, if I don't know the answer, I'll just tell you I don't know the answer and. It was really terrific, even in situations where I wanted them to just tell me what to do. They were like, no, it's your life. You figure this out. So that's the kind of the, that's kind of what I do with my my students is that tough love approach of I will help you find the answers, but they will always be your answers. Um, and that's also what I really strive to do with my writing is to not put myself off and as being better than or higher than you know the other my readers or my students and just saying you know this bothers me too you know I'm angry too or I'm sad because of this or whatever but this is how Buddhism is helping me to cope with this as opposed to well I'm a Buddhist teacher so I don't feel anything and I think that real approach is really what's needed in the West more than anything.
1: That makes a lot of sense.
0: Especially when you're contrasting against the stereotypes of, you know, you're this Zen master sitting under a waterfall and everything runs off your shoulders. and Nothing bothers you. No, actually things do bother you. And and this is how I respond to them. And here's some helpful hints, but I'm not going to just hand you the answer. This is not, you know, you can't buy enlightenment and you can't buy Dharma.
2: (laughs) No, absolutely. You can't. And that's, um, that's probably another uh, thing that uh, we run into uh, in the West is this idea because we think we can buy everything else. So <laughs> why can't we buy enlightenment? <laughs> and you see that uh, retreats, especially uh, people oh, who, mm-hmm. who clearly have this idea that, okay, well, I'm just going to, this is just part of the checklist. And this is one of the marks and you know I have the car and I have the apartment and you know, now I'm going to get enlightenment. And then after that, I'm going to get the rest of the <laughs> I'm just going to get
1: the checklist and enlightenment's right after car, you know, exactly, exactly. And,
2: um, that's, uh, and part of that, that isn't all of their fault. Uh, if we're being frank, some of the marketing mm. around spirituality puts it off that way, right? That, Oh, just mm. buy my book and everything will be fine. And, Um, Those people are always disappointed, uh, naturally, and that's why I always remind students that, you know, if you want to walk down this path, whether it's, you know, Buddhism or another spiritual path, you know, this is a lifetime journey. Uh, If you look at the Buddha, the historical Buddha, you know, the guy who started all this after he realized his own enlightenment under, under the Bodhi tree, He didn't just go back to the palace and hang out. He kept practicing and teaching for another 45 years until he died. So this isn't something that you can just, you know, I'll do it once and then I'm done or I'll do it for a year and then I'm done. This is something that really requires a lot of commitment. And I think that's important because especially when people are starting out, One thing I hear a lot is, "Well, I'm a terrible meditator," or "I'm not doing this right," or "I've been doing this for a year and it's not working." It's like, "Well, what do you think is supposed to happen after a year?" (laughs) (laughs) Right? You have like the practice is uh, Reverend Koyo is always telling us, "Keep going." You know, that's his mantra: just keep going, keep going. And that's that's the key to everything: is you find the practice, and then you. And this is where the faith comes in, is you have to have the faith in yourself and also in the practice that if you keep going and keep doing it, then you'll get where you need to be. But you have to be willing to practice and commit.
1: I think that's uh, it's pervasive with the shamanic stuff as well, because, you oh, know, yeah. how many people do we know on uh, that Sarenth and I have interacted with where it's like, hey, I dropped three grand on this trip to South America and I got a $400 crystal. So I'm a shaman. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. does not quite work that way. And I think another big misconception, and we've caught talked about this on the show in various forms of spirituality is that like enlightenment or an elevation of spirit is is the end. It's like this line that you cross and you have that permanently. And in my experience, you get those moments of enlightenment or awareness for brief moments. And you've got to constantly be expanding and growing and trying to reach it again. It's not like you get there and it's done. Candyland game over, you know, it, right. it doesn't, that's not the thing either. And it
0: it's no. not even necessarily the event. I'm sorry. Please go ahead, Alex. Oh, no, I was,
2: I was I was just, agreeing with you 100% because, because um, a lot of people have this idea. Um, and that's why I always go back to the, the the Buddha and what his experience was like, you know, if he had to keep practicing his whole life, then why wouldn't we have to keep practicing, right? Um, and there is this idea of, you know, this permanent enlightenment that, and, and I had this early in my practice that, you know, I'll realize enlightenment and I'll just float down the street and I won't have any problems anymore and it, it's not like that uh, one thing I really like about uh, Buddhism or I should say uh, Zen Buddhism which is primarily what my practice is Zen in Pure Land is that they it strikes a very good balance between enlightenment and the work to realize enlightenment so what we're taught is that we have inherent enlightenment, we have Buddha nature, but we need to practice in order to realize that enlightenment and manifest in daily life. So uh, we have Nirvana, which uh, translates to to blow out or to extinguish. So when you realize enlightenment, or when you realize Nirvana, rather, what you're blowing out is the poisons of greed, anger, and ignorance which blind you to your own enlightenment. So you'll have those moments where you'll just, you know, everything's fantastic and, and, you know, you feel one with the universe, etc. And that's you realizing your inherent enlightenment. But, you know, because we live in samsara and we're constantly, you know, commercials and TVs, etc., we're exposed to all these different uh, defilements, if you will, that block us from our own enlightenment. That means we're constantly having to practice. So it's not a one thing and you're done. It's a constant uh, grooming and reforming. I I almost compare it to washing a mirror or washing a window. Is is that you you wash the window, you spray the Windex and you scrub it. And, oh, look, I can see the sun. It's beautiful. But if you don't keep washing the window, eventually it'll get dirty (laughs) and you won't see anything. And the sun is still there, uh, your enlightenment is still there, but if you're not doing the daily work to wash the window, you're not going to know that. So, in, in this example, just to clarify, the uh, washing of the window is, is nirvana, that's the state of peace and equanimity, and the sun is our enlightenment, but you, you have to practice both if you're going to see the sun. And... Um, that's a message that not everyone understands All right off the bat.
1: That Great analogy with the window. I think I've got a north-facing enlightenment because it's got a layer of moss on it. I don't know.
0: <laughs> what do we do with you, man? <laughs> oh. But that's a really good point. Um, you know, uh, in the northern tradition, this is why we we do a lot of work around you know cleanse and then ritual. Um, mm-hmm. You need to enter into that ordered space with a good headspace. Um, you know, I'm finding myself nodding along a lot as as you're talking because, like, so much of this matches up per- precisely with where we come out of in the northern tradition. You know, we don't we don't cleanse just because it you know it seems like a good idea at the time it's it's it the cleansing process itself is a ritual and it helps us to attain better connection with our gods ancestors and spirits um you know we do the daily work not just because it happens to look nice and pretty and shiny on instagram or twitter but because (laughs) it's what we're called to do you know and having an aesthetic appreciation doesn't necessarily need to get in the way but when the aesthetic is all that's there You know, that's when you get the $400 crystal shamans. Um, You mean you don't just do it for the likes? (sighs) No, no, unfortunately. The amount of crap you have to go through to become a shaman in another tradition, I don't think you want to do it for the likes.
1: (laughs) How many likes and shares on Facebook does enlightenment take? This is a good question.
2: Someone should do a study. That's right. (laughs) That's right.
1: Like and share this photo for my enlightenment. There you go
2: we'll uh we'll do one of those i'll take the picture and my teacher said if this gets a thousand retweets then that's i'll right. realize in life so.
1: <laughs> <laughs> i'm so zen that no matter how long you look at this photo i still won't move that's
2: uh, that, that's funny i saw a cartoon that um was kind it said um there were two meditators and said, "Oh, enlightenment's easy. You just have to outlast the teacher." You know, they're sitting in meditation, and then from where you're your position, you can see the teacher, and what they're looking at is actually a cardboard cutout, and the teacher <laughs> is like behind the cutout taking a nap.
1: So. <laughs> <laughs> that totally sounds like something you'd do, Jim. It's great. Oh, it's funny. Before I, I do have a more serious question, but I, I got to tell you a little side story here. I have a friend that I've known for a long time, and he's a wonderful guy. But we always joked about him very being very high strung. And one day, he tells us the story of he went to a Zen temple and he was. He said, "I'm going to do it. I'm going to. I'm going to start studying Zen, and I'm going to. I'm going to, to en- enrich that practice." And we said, "Okay." And he comes back to us later and he says, so um, had something interesting happen. And we said, what's that? And he said, well, I went and talked to the teacher for a little bit. And at some point in time, the teacher looked at me and said, you little too high strung for Zen. (laughs) That's (laughs) (laughs) great. I was like, well, that's pretty impressive. Oh, well, nailed that one. (laughs) (laughs) We are preventing suffering by not allowing you to try to pursue Zen. This is it.
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, that's funny. That's funny. Well, because a lot of people don't realize this, that uh, with Buddhism, there is a lot of different traditions in the same way that there are a lot of uh, de- denominations in Christianity and mm-hmm. I'm sure there's lots of different paths in uh, paganism as well. Um, and you know, not everything is for everyone. Right. <laughs> so it takes a little time to figure out which path is the best for you. Um, so yeah, maybe he just needed to find a different teacher.
1: <laughs> it wasn't- yeah. I mean, I, that's a legitimate answer. It really is. I, it, not, and not everything is suited for everybody. That's that's absolutely true. Um, if you have a minute, I would like to ask you a question about what I think is probably uh, one of the most misunderstood terms that is commonly thrown around. And I think you, I, I'd like to hear what your thoughts are on, that, on it. A lot of people in many spiritual paths and even conversationally, they like to throw around the word karma. Can you talk about that a little from your perspective
2: yeah no absolutely and uh, i'll start by saying that in the west we have an absolutely terrible idea of what karma is and how it works (laughs) (laughs) so we'll start there um because a lot of people have this idea that karma is this cosmic judge uh and if you do something good then good things will happen to you and if you do something bad then bad things will happen to you just down the line and that's not how it works at all the best way i would describe karma is to say that it's it's simple cause and effect if you throw a ball up in the air that's a cause and the effect is that it will come down back to the ground And you better be there to catch it before it hits someone in the head. But uh, that's karma in and of itself. And a big part of Buddhist practice is calming our minds through chanting and meditation enough that we can see the karma we're creating and then make better choices as a result. So... And that sounds very simple, and it is, but it's not easy to do because when we're trapped in this mind of desire, we don't Mm -hmm. have a good appreciation of the karma that we're creating. Uh, So an example would be a kid who doesn't want to go to bed, even though they have to wake up early in the morning. Every logical bone of our body is from the outside looking in and saying, you have to wake up early go to bed so you'll be well rested, et cetera, et cetera. But the kid's not thinking that, you know, they're playing their video game, they're watching TV and they're so stuck in that, that they can't see what's happening, going to happen down the road if they keep going down this path. So in Buddhism, a lot of what we do, you know, just very plain and simple is just learning to see our karma and make better choices and see the karma that we're creating uh, that's why we have things like the five precepts and the eightfold path. And what that essentially is, is kind of a crutch, if you will. So when we don't have that awakened mind, when we're not really in touch with our enlightenment in that particular moment, we have some general guidelines that you know we can follow that will you know keep us on the straight and narrow. But the goal is always to see our, our karma and what we're doing, what the effects of it are more clearly. So it's not really a, a punishment or reward system so much as a if you do this, this will is probably what will happen system. And I, I think it's also important to note that we're not just affected by our own karma. You know, every living thing is creating karma in every moment. So mm. I'm making karma. You're making karma. My cat's making karma right now. And all of this is <laughs> intertwining, <laughs> to create you know, the world we live in. So it's very possible that someone could be doing very bad things or very negative things, but they just, for whatever reason, they're surrounded by the conditions where they don't suffer the way that you would expect, mm-hmm. right? Or on the flip side, someone could be doing all the right things, but they don't benefit as much as you would expect because they suffer from the karma of a family that's abusive, or they suffer from the karma of um, you know, just being poor, that kind of thing. So we don't practice and do the right thing in Buddhism in the hope that we'll get a reward. We do the right thing just to do the right thing um, with no goal in mind. So we're not right. meditating with the hope that we'll realize enlightenment. We're meditating just to meditate. You know, we're washing dishes just to wash dishes, and of course, as we practice and we create and we engage in these rituals, a lot of them are geared towards us creating you know better karma and better situations for ourselves, but. Uh, we really, it's very dangerous to get into this idea that, you know, well, if I practice Buddhism, good things will happen to me. Or if I'm nice to my coworker, then they'll automatically be nice to me. Probably they will be nice to you. Just like if I throw a ball in the air, probably it will come back to the ground. But there is the possibility that an eagle will swoop down from the sky and catch it, right? So... We, we can't get caught up in these ideas of, well, I'm creating all the right karma and the right things aren't happening for me. Uh, we just, we, we do the right thing just to do the right thing. And then we allow the world to play
1: out how it will. Yeah. That that's really fascinating because um, you know, getting back to what we talked about earlier with like the victim blaming sort of mentality, there are, there are cases, and you brought up poverty. That's a great example of, you know, well, you should, you know, it, it's your karma that you haven't worked through, you haven't done the right things, and it, and it seemed like some sort of cosmic uh, vending machine reward system, when the truth mm-hmm. is you might just be caught up in the karma waves that are generated by somebody who's hoarding in a massive amount of wealth, and that's really out of your hands. Your karma is only what you're doing in your life, but you can't sure. get caught up in other people's karma. That's fascinating.
2: Yeah, no, you you absolutely can. So the idea, um, because then the question becomes, well, if I'm affected by everyone else's karma, what's the point of practicing? And the answer becomes, you know, you're going to suffer regardless, but you can work to ensure you don't suffer needlessly. Right. And that's really what we do in Buddhism is we can't escape all suffering. But we can ensure we don't create unnecessary suffering. So um, in the example of you know, just your daily job going to work, there are certain things that the boss said we're going to do this and it's out of my hands. That's that's just what we're going to do. Okay. But even in that moment where the work that I control, I can still control my my thought process and you know the attitude I have going into that work and and I can approach it from a place of acceptance this is what we're going to do and I don't agree with it but it is what it is or I can approach it from a place of anger uh in which case I'll I'll have some additional suffering in addition to the work I'm doing so the work hasn't changed it's just me that's changed in my mindset and with karma a lot of it is just realizing that, you know, the things that are out of my control, I have to accept. But the things that are in my control, well, those are the things I focus on. And those are the things I work on. Um, kind of tangentially um, connected. I was at a retreat once. And uh, one of the things when you're at a Buddhist retreat is that you're not allowed to use your cell phone uh, because they want you 100% focused on what you're doing. They don't want you... Playing Candy Crush at night, things like that. And one day, I was just in a really, really good place from the day's meditation. And I go, you know, we were finished from the day. I go up to the dormitory where I'm sleeping, and there's a guy on his cell phone. And he just totally pulled me out of all the good things I was having, and I was I had this really angry, wrathful attitude about it. And it's like, okay, what am I going to do? And uh, the monastic who was running the retreat. He took questions every evening uh, where you'd basically write down on a note card because we weren't allowed to talk. So you'd write down on a note card what your question was and you put it into a box. And then he'd read all the responses and answer the questions. And I was just really mad and upset. I went down to the kitchen. I got a note card. And, you know, could you please say something about people using their cell phones during the retreats? It's very distracting and it's not what we're here for. So embarrassing, but it happened. And uh, the next day, he read my question and, and he did say, you know, look, we're here for a reason. You shouldn't be on your cell phones. Please put those away. His very next sentence, however, but whoever wrote this note really should mind their own business. And oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> And, and you said that and then you went on to explain, you know, people will do things, but in the end, we need to focus on our own practice and making sure we're doing the right things. And when it comes to karma, like that just sums it all up for me, is that there are going to be all kinds of things going on around us, regardless of what we do. You know, you wake up in the morning and you're the perfect Buddhist from the time you wake up from the t- to the time you go to sleep. Bad things will happen. That's how the world works. But it gets better and a lot more manageable if we just focus on ourselves
1: and the, own, the karma that we're generating. Right. That's, and I think... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I, I was just going to ask. So the way you're explaining it um, is great because it... it, it first of all, it, it helps explain to people that you can take a lot of the judgment statements out of the, the karma phrase or, or word or using it, like if it's simply cause and effect, then you can effectively remove some of the judgments that you're using against other people and against yourself. The other thing that brings to mind is that that story makes me realize that the very act of trying to be aware of your karma or dealing with your karma is by default an act of karma, right? Right. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that is one
2: really good thing about karma is when, well, if you understand karma correctly and you see it as cause and effect, like you said, a lot of the judgment is removed from your thoughts about other people. So if I'm dealing with someone and they're you know being difficult, let's say, but, but I just understand karma, then, OK, well, something happened to make them act this way. And I don't know what it is. I don't understand it, but clearly something is going on in their life. And because I understand that now I can react with compassion Mm -hmm. or with understanding because, well, something's going on as opposed to, well, I have good karma. I don't deserve this. Right. Right. Um,
1: (laughs) I have good karma. I've got a good credit limit. Damn it. Exactly. I,
2: I meditated today. (laughs) This should not be happening. (laughs) (laughs) but no a hundred percent it takes all the judgment out and it's just like and even with the guy on the cell phone you know that that was just his karma you know he for whatever reason he was in a place where he just really needed to play candy crush and when i accept that that's his karma then okay i go to bed and i mind my own business but if we don't understand it that way then we get into this really judgy my spirituality is better than yours mentality, and that just creates unnecessary suffering for for everyone. So, right that that monk was on point for sure.
1: Yeah, because it seems to me that you know that guy, the distraction of the cell phone, might not have been there except for he might have been struggling with his desire to call home or check in at the job or look at his email or something. And so, it wasn't so much that you were using the cell phone; it's that he had the desire to use the cell phone himself probably sure so sure
2: absolutely and uh karma has been so powerful for me or my understanding of karma has been so powerful because it's it it's allowed me to practice acceptance in a way that i couldn't before i don't take things so personally um it's almost it's like the weather you know, nobody gets mad at the sky because it's raining. That's just the weather and how it works. Because we understand <laughs> weather patterns and things of that nature, so we're, we're we we practice non attachment towards the weather. And if you have a good understanding towards karma, then you can practice non attachment with people as well. Uh, it's not detachment. It's not that you don't care. You understand that you know they have stuff going on and it's causing them to act a certain way, and mm-hmm. you know that that's fine. You know, You know, if it's raining outside, I don't get mad at the sky. I just pull out my umbrella, right? Um, If I'm dealing with someone and they're being difficult, I I don't get mad at them for being difficult. I just rely on my Buddhist training and find a good way to work with that person in that moment. And then one thing that got brought up earlier that I kind of want to circle back to is like uh, when you were talking about the cleansing and Mm -hmm. the ritual, and we don't do this just because, Uh, I didn't have a good respect for ritual when I first started, you know, I was fine with the meditating, I was fine with reading, but, you know, why am I bowing to the Buddha? Why am I chanting? You know, why do we wear robes? I, I did it because if someone's been doing something for 2600 years, there's probably a reason. Right. And, and there's a reason that we do the bowing and the chanting. It's because these rituals create karma within us and they make, they change our mind state in real ways. For example, with bowing, uh, we don't bow just because we bow because it, it creates humility inside of us. I mean, if you think if you bow 10,000 times, you're going to be a different person than you were before. And, you know, with the chanting, um, when we do loving kindness meditations and, you know, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be safe, I love you. um, Those aren't just words we're speaking. You say I love you enough times, you're going to feel something. So those those rituals create karma within us and they, they change our mind states. They change the way we look at the world. So I found that a lot of practice is systematically making you do things that maybe you don't want to do but you do it anyway because that's the rule, and because of that it helps you create the necessary karma for you to move forward in your practice just like the cleansing that you talked about
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense um at the end of it it's funny you bring up uh health as one of the things that you um do as part of your prayer uh, chanting um because one of the the and capture most of our prayers is Vest Heil or Vest Thu Heil, and it means "be may you be healthy." Mm-hmm. And we're saying That's this right. to our gods, our ancestors, and our spirits, and we're saying it to each other. Mm-hmm. And that, why, why do we need to wish the gods healthiness? Well, we want to live in good reciprocity. Sure, sure, and yeah. No
2: reciprocity is a really good word because it, it it builds that connection between you and them, between you and your Uh, that's between you and your fellow practitioners like you tell someone may you be healthy enough times you really want them to be healthy and you know vice versa it's kind of like when you're a kid and you you fight with your brother and then you're hug hug your brother hug your brother right now Mm -hmm. right uh because it forces you to kind of get back on good terms or at least not bad terms with your siblings. And, you know, so that was a ritual in, in a, in a way. And then with our spirituality, we have other rituals. And what I'm learning now as a teacher, as I teach these rituals, as I explain to people why we do them and perform them is I, I'm having a lot of aha moments. It's like, Oh, that's why they made us do it this way. Mm-hmm. Or, you, know, you exper- experiment with different things. So it's like, well, what if we you know, did the chanting at this point or instead of this point, it's like, oh, no, it doesn't work as well. So th- there's a real science to it that I don't think you necessarily understand as a student, but as a teacher, as you're instructing others, you, you start to realize that, oh, there's a reason that uh, Sensei was so strict about this. It's because it helps in this way. Um, with the chanting, for example, when we chant uh, Nimbotsu, uh, Namo Amitabha Buddha, which basically means "I take refuge in the Buddha of Infinite Light," um, it one, it generates compassion within within us and a sense of interconnectedness. But it also puts you in a mindset where it's a lot easier to meditate.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I didn't realize that at first for a lot for a, like I told you, I, I didn't like the chanting. So I didn't do it. I just, I'm just going to say, right. So I, I would meditate and it was fine. But when I finally just did the ritual because it's the ritual and I realized like I meditate a lot better now and it's because I do the chanting beforehand and I, I get into that proper mindset, mm-hmm. like you said, with the cleansing it puts us in the, the, the mindset for what we're going to do next. So, It's interesting with, you know, various spiritual paths that, you know, a lot of ritual is creating the causes for the effect, which in Buddhism is is enlightenment and awakening.
1: So if we can turn the corner a little bit on the topics here, I want to come back to your your blog spot, uh, sameoldzen.blogspot.com. And you just had a really interesting article that went up on something that's happened just recently uh, with the native elder uh, Nathan Phillips and the uh, Trump supporters and uh, the black Hebrew Israelites at the all at Washington, D.C. at the same time, and you had a really nice article uh, that explored that a little bit, it had some really interesting thoughts. Would you talk about that and share about that a little? Sure.
2: Sure, absolutely. So uh, where I got, just to back up for a moment, how I kind of found my, my approach to the practice, which is one of spirit. Spirituality and everyday life are the same thing. Was uh, I kind of got dragged into it, kicking and screaming, um, because I was living this life where you know I just come back from the farm, and you know I got a job an apartment, and apartment. I was back in conventional society, and I still wasn't completely sold on this idea that daily life and spirituality were the same. And on top of all this, you know I'm trying to do activist work at the same time as well. And I was doing activism and I was working and I was practicing Buddhism and it was like I was being pulled in three different directions where I felt like my spiritual practice was pulling me away from the world. But I was an activist, so I wanted to be in the world and work for it. And I still have to make a living. And how am I going to do all three things at once? And more than that, with the activism, I found that it was causing me to more and more and more have this real feeling of anger and discontent. And I can't believe they voted this way, or I can't believe this is happening with, you know, this corporation or that corporation. And, you know, Buddha said that anger is a poison, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, how do I reconcile these three things together? And what I found um, was that Buddhism says we have to live in the world in a very specific way, and that is as a a peacemaker, essentially, Uh, meaning that we're working to make end suffering for ourselves and for other people. And if those two things seem to conflict, well, that means we have to work harder to find a way to make them not conflict. And what happened Here is a really, really good example of this um, with politics as a whole and also with this situation. Uh, Speaking of karma, uh, I think politics is a really good example of Mm -hmm. learning to accept karma because there's just so much anger on both sides of people who don't want to accept things as they are. And, you know, maybe. I don't think Trump should be in office or I think he should be in office and they don't respect him enough. And a lot of what I had to learn to do as a Buddhist, as as an activist was to just accept the fact that not everyone agrees with me
1: mm-hmm.
2: and that's okay. Like I have to be okay with the fact that other people hold views that are different from mine. And then with this scenario, um, It was just such a lightning ride of, you know, it's the pro-life march is happening. The indigenous people's march is happening. You have Trump supporters. You have liberals. You have the black Hebrew Israelites. And like, it's like you were trying to create a situation where something would pop off, which it did. And I'm just trying to figure out how can I write about this? And still show respect and dignity and courtesy, you know, to the people, to all the people involved, which is what Buddhism demands. And I realized that I'm just going to talk about right speech. So I'm not going to say anything about, well, this person should have done this or this person should have done that. I'm just going to give the teaching that I think will help everyone, you know, live better and uh, be more courteous to others and with right speech uh, because with Twitter there's a lot of wrong speech that happens which is how I heard about this story Um, there are two parts to it that are really important are all of our speech should either a remove suffering from the world or b increase um, happiness in the world so that's compassionate on the first half and that's loving kindness on the second half. And if we're not doing one of those two things, then we just shouldn't be talking uh, from the Buddhist perspective. And I wrote that piece kind of to remind everyone that we have this thing that happened and we all have opinions about how it should have been one way or another. And I'm not going to argue with you about who has the right opinion. I'm just going to suggest that maybe... Instead of trying to figure out right or wrong, we should just talk to each other. Right? That helps everyone feel good.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So that that was the goal with the article because it, it there were just so many hot button issues, and, and there are so many people not practicing acceptance, not practicing loving kindness that I felt you know as a buddhist teacher the best thing i could do was you know just kind of nudge people in a direction that i thought might be helpful
1: no that's really good i i think i see the parallels what you're talking about between that and your um your story about being in a traffic jam obviously there's a lot of things that we might like to change but some things are outside of our power to change at least right at that moment so you can beat your head against the wall and argue with people and make everybody miserable. Or you can say, you can look around and say, what actions can I take right now? And if there are no actions you can take right now, then you just have to wait. But there's no sense, um, putting more suffering in your life over it. Is that kind of where you're coming from? Is that what I'm getting out of that? A hundred percent.
2: All right.
1: 110%.
2: I it's something. just a...
1: <laughs> I get one more gold star on my enlightenment chart We're doing pretty good today go. go.
2: <laughs> But no, that, that's 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 it 100% um, I could have wrote that article in two sentences With what you said But uh, with politics, that's a really good example Of, you know Regardless of who you want in office You know, Trump is in office right now Um, Regardless of, you know, how what you think should have happened in that moment with, you know, all the people involved, the kids and the native elder and, you know, the black Hebrew Israelites, you know, that already happened. And there's nothing that we can say in this moment that's going to change that. So the only thing we can really choose is are we going to use our language and our speech to make things better? Or are we going to use things to make things worse? Or are we just not going to say anything and be neutral? Um, but that's the decision we have to make. And I think with politics, that's such a good, and with activism as a whole, and with work and with everything, it's just you're constantly in this position, well, I, I can't change this. You know, I wish I didn't have to pay my rent at the end of the month, but I do which means I have to go to work. Mm -hmm. So I can either hate that or I can be okay with it. But either way, I'm going to work tomorrow. Um, And when we're talking about incidents like this, uh, yeah, I have a lot of ideas of what should or should not have happened, but it it happened the way it did. So what are we going to do now? Uh, What karma am I going to create now that's either going to make things better or worse? Uh, Reverend Koyo Kibose. He likes to tell us, you know, don't waste your suffering. So whatever happens. Yeah, I like it. So whatever happens to you, figure out a way to make it a teaching. You know, what can I learn from this moment that's going to help us help me in my practice? Because it's going to happen regardless. So when I was looking for a teaching in this moment, the one that came to me was right speech. And then, how can I use this to create uh, what in Buddhism we call divine abodes or awakened mind states? Uh, Those being compassionate action, loving kindness, sympathetic joy, or uh, equanimity. How can I use this moment to develop one of those four mind states through my speech? And I felt like writing this article was a way to do that.
0: I'm glad you said that, because um, a frequent critique of people saying nothing is, well, you, uh, to quote Howard Zinn, the historian, is, you know, you can't be neutral on a moving train. You may not be able to be neutral on a moving train, but you can choose whether or not to stand up and block the aisle.
2: Yes, that is very well said. And, and that, that's 100 percent true. Like, um, and that's that's life. That's samsara. That's why the First Noble Truth says life is suffering, because we're all on this train together. Uh, whether we want to be or not so what are we going to do while we're on that train and it's funny you you mentioned that because one of the things i really like to do is travel via trains uh, on amtrak uh my grandfather he didn't work for amtrak he worked for conrail but you know because of him i developed a love for trains as a kid and i like to do trips and whatnot but they do this cool thing on train on amtrak where they make you sit in. um there's no assigned seating for the dining car. So you won't mm-hmm. walk in and are you here for dinner? Okay. Sit at this table and you sit with whoever you sit with. And, you know, they could be a progressive, they could be a Trump supporter. They could be a vegan. They could be a cattle rancher, whatever, but you're at that table for the next 45 minutes. <laughs> so what are you going to mm-hmm. do at that table? And, What I really try to get people to understand is whatever moment you're in, you are in that moment, whether you want to be or not. So what are you going to do? You know, what are our current political situation, whatever you think of it? That's our situation. Like, what are you going to do to make your life and the people around you's lives better or worse? Your job, your family, same thing. And that's really the question we always ask ourselves in the practices, you know, what do I need to do in this moment? Um, and whatever I'm doing, is it making things better or worse? And if it's making it worse, I should probably change it.
1: I, I think the, uh, don't waste your suffering, man. That was like a slap in the forehead. I think, I, I think, uh, I think I'm going to close most political arguments with that. If someone starts getting an argument with me, I'm just going to post don't waste your suffering or walk away. I think that's going to be oh, <laughs> this is my new approach to politics online. I think I like
2: it. I like it a lot. <laughs> and it was definitely a wake up call when I
1: heard it too. I was like, well, okay. <laughs> that's fantastic. Well, you know, Sensei Alex, I, I don't want to keep you all evening, but I have enjoyed this conversation so very much. And I think that everybody that's listening is going to get so much information out of it. Besides your your blog spot and uh, your YouTube videos, is there anything else you're doing that people should be aware of? Are there ways that you prefer people contact you? Do you do speaking events? What kind of things are are, are can people contact you about?
2: Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, so I do I have my blog uh, www.saoldzen.bblockspot.com. and then I also have my uh, YouTube channel that you can just search Sensei Alex Kaguyo and I'll, my channel will come up. So if you want to you know, learn about more about me or receive some teachings uh, you know, without leaving your house, that's the easiest way to do it. Um, as far as speaking engagements and things like that, uh, my email address is on the blog. And I do, I really enjoy and love, uh, you know, speaking at different events. And I think that's probably the most fun I have is going and working with people and really showing them and teaching them whatever situation you're in, you know, how can you make that part of your spiritual practice? So I enjoy doing that quite a bit. And you can just email me and then uh, we can talk more about it, but I'll help in any way I can. Fantastic,
1: Sarenth, any other questions? Anything else you want to throw no, in? No,
0: I, I really appreciate you bringing your, your time and attention to all these things and, and answering with such excellent stories from your own life. And, uh, I, yeah, <laughs> I could keep you all that, night here.
1: Yeah, just... stories and amazing clarity, too. I, I think there is something to be said about the the voice as opposed to the written word for some of these things mm-hmm. for for a deeper understanding.
2: Sure, absolutely. And I, and I, well, I,
1: we we really appreciate your voice. It's a it's a, a very calming voice that expresses a, a lot of of caring and information all at the same time. Oh <laughs> <laughs>
2: wow! Thank you. That was so nice. Thank you. I, I appreciate. It. And I, I've really enjoyed this uh, this conversation. It's it's been great, and I, I've learned some things as well. So it's fantastic. Fantastic.
0: Thank you so
1: much. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.